Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind boggles. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the U.S., or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the U.S. to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash mtp, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to mtp, the number four, and the letter u.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. I'm here today with Greg Rice, and uh, Greg is an entrepreneur, angel investor, and uh, these days also a YouTuber. Um, Greg is the founder of Race Labs, a mobile and web application design and development company, company that he sold in 2017. And since then, Greg has been an angel investor um, out of Boston and has invested in over a dozen companies of his, on his own. Um, he's especially interested in companies that are improving lives through technology and design. Um, that's going to be interesting to hear more about that. Welcome to the Judgment Call podcast. Greg, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, absolutely. We, we are very happy you made this happen. Um, you know, I, I've realized um, going through, through your background, you, you really bootstrapped, and it, it looks like, and correct me if that is wrong, your own company that you um, built for almost 20 years, right? You stuck with Race Labs for, for the whole long slog. Yeah, it's uh, it, it was a fantastic journey. Uh, I started the business around uh, 2000 to 2003. Uh, after I left Microsoft, I'd been working on uh, operating systems in uh, Redmond, Washington, and I decided to start my own business. And uh, it was really an evolution. Kind of explored a bunch of different technologies and shareware and photography and other things. And uh, we were doing a lot of interesting consulting and and. Uh, Happened upon um, happened to be in the right place at the right time when Apple introduced the iPhone, and that really led to a, a big boom for us. And so, uh, like I said, started in 2002, 2003, and then grew that and sold the business in 2017. That's pretty amazing. There aren't a lot of founders um, that really have the patience to to stick to their their own venture for that long. Most are looking for an exit, either because they are bored or they are trying to to jump on on an, the next wave, hitting the beach, so to speak. Right? Um, did you ever felt the urge to exit that company earlier and to do something different, or you never had that? No, I mean for for me, it's it's really about having fun and building something that I enjoy, and so you know, especially for 
the first uh, 10 years of the business, you know, every day was an adventure and we were learning new things and building new software. And so, you know, I, I personally have never really chased the money. You know, I, I was chasing kind of how do I have a big impact? How do I have... Uh, a good team? How do I build the right culture? How do I have an impact through the work that we're doing? And because we were doing that, you know, it, it didn't feel like, oh, I need a jump ship or, or do something uh, different. We certainly had opportunities to exit earlier, uh, but, you know, for me, the timing wasn't right and it wasn't right, the right opportunity. And we had a lot of continued growth through what we were doing at that point. I heard this, this maybe, it's, maybe it's a theory, maybe it's a saying now, but Ravikant um, told me that he was saying, you know, there isn't just compound interest in financial investments. There's also um, uh, compound interest in personal relationships. So what you do, as you just said, the, the people you work with and the, the structures you build, as long as they're flexible enough, they can bring in compound interest, which, which really is only visible after a certain time period, five to ten years, right? Then it really looks different than regular interest. And um, the the thing is, though, that the Silicon Valley culture is you should do something, fail really quick, and then after three years, it's time to exit, right? That's the typical venture, or maybe 10 years, right, in a really successful venture. But most ventures, that seems to be the time frame. Um, how do you think of that as an angel investor now where you probably also invest in some Silicon Valley startups? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely looking at uh, long term and kind of what you know, for, for from an angel investment or any kind of investment standpoint, I personally don't have an expectation that I'm getting my money back out in two three years. You know, I'm really betting on the founder. What's their mission? What's their vision? Why are they doing this? And kind of what is the pathway for them to make long term sustainable change? Anyone who's had any long term sustainable change knows that it just takes a long time to go do that, and so it's really finding both either industries or segments or founders that are really interested in having that long-term journey. That notion of compounding interest and uh, starting to see that snowball effect, it happens in so many areas and oftentimes it's very hard to recognize because, you know, when you're talking about small numbers, and it can be small numbers of anything, whether it's revenue or traffic, YouTube subscribers, whatever, like you don't necessarily see that compounding interest early on because that incremental growth looks so small. It's like, oh, I made $10 today. Oh, today I made $11. Well, $10 to $11 doesn't feel like a lot, but you know, when, when you're going from a million dollars to $1.1 million, like, you know, oh, that, that feels like a much more significant impact to have in a day. Um, but those, those early compound interests, whether it's relationships and your network effect and what your business is doing, uh, it's investing in people who understand that and are really in it for the long haul. Yeah, I think it's hard to, to, to merge these two timeframes, right? There is, um, and I've, I've been influenced by Nassim Taleb, obviously, and his Lindy effect, you know, do something that's something that he describes. He didn't come up with this, but um, he made it popular. It's something that you you see that makes a real impact on the world. And it's it's often a time frame that's maybe half a generation or a full generation. And on the other hand, you build a startup, right, where you are, when you raise venture capital, they typically give you a time frame of 12 to 18 months to you know, right in your ship, which usually means you have extremely high uh, milestones to hit, which you promise investors, right? I mean, I'm not saying the entrepreneurs are not, are not yep. guilty of this. Um, 
but it, you, you put them out in order to get the funding in the first place, right? So it's kind of a, um, it's a shaky ground everyone is on. And, and we, we talked with Bill Reichert about this before, that everyone has all the incentives to lie in this initial conversation when you talk about an investment. But there's also the time frame issue, I think, where both sides, entrepreneurs and investors, constantly lie about because for investors, they'd rather be, you just said you have a very long-term perspective, but you know, after five years and no liquidity, when it's it can be tricky, right? Um, you want to see some of your startups exiting in a positive way, and I think a lot of people, a lot of VCs, have their ten-year fun time. It's often hard to consolidate these two ideas. On one hand, you want a long time frame, big change that happens over a long time frame and compounds to a billion-dollar company or a hundred billion-dollar company these days, and on the other hand, you have those. Um, you know, I need to show my LPs something, and it better be good. Um, and I'd rather push for this IPO. Um, how do you feel you can consolidate those two things if you if you are in a startup invested with a bunch of other VCs that have might be a very different time frame than you have? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really founders have to choose their investors and have to understand uh, what the motivation of the people are who are investing in their company. Um, you know, I think there are good reasons to have accelerated time lines and timetables because it can provide positive pressure for founders to look for opportunities for growth where maybe they feel complacent. Um, you know, at the same time, sometimes uh, growth pressure can be a negative pressure where you're always chasing a number at the cost of your long-term customers, retention, churn, kind of the, the things that will longer-term sustain your business. I don't think there's a blanket answer uh, you know, I think it's finding the velocity that, that, that is appropriate for your business. And that is going to be different on a per business basis. You know, when I was starting my startup, um, my dad said, um, you have to choose uh, slow burn or fast burn. And I didn't know what that meant, but uh, he kind of explained it like, you can go after VC dollars uh, and venture capital, and that will give you more fuel in the tank, but there will be an expectation that you will burn fast, that you will use that capital and it'll accelerate your growth significantly. Uh, you can go for slow burn where you bootstrap your business and you're not taking outside capital. You control the speed and velocity of your scale and you calibrate your risk profile to the growth that you want to see. There's no right or wrong. Like I've seen bootstrap founders be incredibly successful and I've seen bootstrap founders fail and I've seen uh, venture capital uh, based startups you know, raise a ton of money, like tens, twenty, fifty million dollars, and fail. And I've certainly seen VC companies raise a lot of money and be very successful as well. And so you have to kind of calibrate both to the entrepreneur and the CEO, and make sure that you're kind of mentally aligned with the expectations of investors. You know, if you as a CEO are looking to be slow and steady burn. And your investors are really expecting, you know, 10x year over year, you know, in either you succeed or you fail and they're okay with it, you know, that, that may not be the best match for you as a, as a founder. And so making sure you're aligned and that, that expectations are set. I, I do think it's useful for founders to, um, to set ambitious but somewhat realistic uh, expectations in terms of their pitch decks or kind of where, where they want to be. You don't want to be like, oh yeah, we're going to grow, you know, five percent year over year, a little faster than inflation. Um, you know, that's not going to be very exciting to investors. At the same time, if you say that you're going to grow, you know, three hundred percent year over year, and you're significantly under that, you know, there's going to be mismatched expectations as well. 
It's absolutely true what you say. Um, I, I just feel both sides have so much incentive to to lie, right? Investors have incentive to lie because they say oh, we we we're in for the long term, but they actually change their mind after twelve months. And the the entrepreneurs, obviously, from their side, have the same incentive. And I'm, I'm amazed the market works so well, right? The startup market and the the VC market. And again, I I actually think that the best relationships between founders and investors are built on trust uh, and. Y- y- you know, yes, each side can lie and be disingenuous, and there are plenty of examples of both sides doing that. Uh, but some of the best companies, some of the best investors, some of the best founders, they're very transparent and they've built really strong relationships with their investors, where their investors will really uh, go deep into their business and help them achieve their growth, help them understand the problems, and help them get to the next level of growth as well. Um, you know, at the same, you know. You're on the same team as your investor, and if you think of that, if you think about it as adversarial, um, you know it, it's just not as fun. You do a lot of YouTube tutorials. Um, your YouTube channel is pretty popular. Um, I introduced you kind of tongue in cheek as a YouTuber. I'm not sure if you like that label. Um, it's it's, but I like your your videos that you put out, right? I think you put a lot of effort in. Those are really in depth tutorial over for a certain topic. Um, the, I watched one um, about uh, angel investing. There was another one about VC investing. Um, there's probably a few hundred, um, and I thought they're they're really well done. Um, there's, I think one of your, your your most popular ones seemed to be the one about GPT three, um, which really explains what GPT three does. Um, how did you get into this whole YouTubing thing? Is that your your children helped you? How, how did you get started? Yeah, so uh, yeah, I, th- I think even before YouTube, um, you know, I've been blogging for many many years. Like when I started my business, I, I set up a blog to just kind of journal some of the ideas, some of the things that I was thinking about, uh, and kind of in the two thousands through two thousand. Uh, 15 or something like that. Um, so about 15 years, I was blogging and writing articles. And for me, you know, writing and blogging was a way to process my own thinking and kind of like let me think about a topic and jot down some notes and like articulate it in a way that expressed what I was thinking. Uh, you know, blogging has effectively. I mean, it's not dead, but blogging is not a good way to reach an audience anymore, or it's not as good as it used to be. And so I wanted to start again after I sold my business. I wanted to, again, put my thoughts down in some way, shape, or form and publish them. And uh, YouTube and video uh, was just a very compelling new medium. And looking at uh, YouTube as a space, you know, there's lots of niches, there's lots of people creating content. But um, for entrepreneurs, I saw a, a lot of kind of sensational get rich quick. Let's set up a Shopify store. Let's uh, do drop shipping. Uh, I saw a lot of investment channels, and I didn't, I didn't see a ton of good advice for startup founders. And I thought for me, it was a good way to uh, both be creative, which I enjoy doing, but putting content out in there and then give back. You know, I, I've been mentoring and working with a lot of startups, but I recognized early on that I'm not going to be able to mentor way too many startups. There's just too many companies that need help. And so some of the questions that I get asked a lot, like I'll write down like, oh, I've been asked that question like six or seven or eight or 10 times. I'll be like, hey, maybe I should do a video on that. That way when I get asked that question, I can just shoot people a link. Um, and so it's been my way of kind of like journaling and blogging and, and um, you know, it's, it's not 
you know, I, I personally don't like the term YouTuber because it implies that it's kind of a career for me. Like for me, it's about creativity and making and kind of putting ideas out into the world and getting feedback from the community and meeting new people. And so for me, it's a tool like, you know, I'm on this podcast. Maybe I wouldn't be on this podcast if, uh, if you hadn't seen some of my videos. So it's a way for me to communicate out to smart and interesting people around the world and kind of bridge new connections. Yeah, I think you, you're onto something. Um, I, I think blogging was the, the tool du jour um, about 20 years ago. Um, I started 2002 for the exact same reason. Um, I sold my, my company and I, I was trying to find a way to reach out to people across the Atlantic. I, I grew up in Europe and started my comp- first company or my, my, my company that I sold in Europe. And uh, then I went to the US and you know started from scratch. There was no LinkedIn at the time. So it was, it was an ideal way to do that. It, it, I think it was still good for um, about 10, 15 more years. And as you, as you, um, as you have analyzed already, this, this traffic mostly moved now into social media, mostly on YouTube. Um, I fully agree. This is this is a great tool, and I I wonder how do you well, when you see other YouTubers out there, right? When when you see and we, there isn't a ton of VCs on YouTube um, from from what I've seen. Maybe I've missed it, right? There's a lot of kids, and that's uh, you know. Uh, using the label YouTuber makes you kind of 20 years younger or 30 years younger. It kind of <laughs> makes us all like look like 17-year-olds, right? We, we have pimples that we need makeup for, and then we go on YouTube and we have a huge audience. Um, so I, I, I keep arguing with my children if I'm a YouTuber or not because I put this podcast on YouTube, right? <laughs> and, and they're like, no, 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 daddy, that's, that's not right. Um, so they imply something else with that, right? So it's, it's kind of a lifestyle, as you say. They want to make money from it, but they also seek the social validation from it. Yeah, it's just a medium. Like for for me, it's you know I produce videos, but it, it doesn't like I don't I don't mind the label just because that's the the that's the label society uses. But uh, you know for me, it's really about publishing ideas. Uh, you know, if it wasn't YouTube, it would be blogging. If it wasn't blogging, it would be you know podcasts or doing Clubhouse or doing you know some other medium as well. So it's, it's really it seems Substack. Yeah, it seems to me whatever. A lot of right, like there's there, there's so many publishing. Mechanisms. This just happens to be a really good way to reach yeah. a broad audience. Yeah. Uh, from your audience, what's kind of your feel? Are those mostly entrepreneurs? Are those people technology experts? Are those kids, literally seventeen-year-old, who just you know put their money in Bitcoin? What's kind of your gut feel for your audience? Um, how this distributes? Yeah, I would say in in general, the audience feels like it's uh, young entrepreneurs. Uh, is is where I've gotten more engagement. Um, you know, I, I set up a Discord and I've answered some questions and, and certainly gotten pitch, pitch decks and things sent to me. Uh, so it seems to be uh, more first-time entrepreneurs, um, but it is diverse. You know, I, I get a lot of different folks uh, checking stuff out and fi- figuring it out. And, and again, like I'm not, you know, I'm pretty new at it as well. I started uh, at the uh, about one year ago, thereabouts, like right, right when. The pandemic started to uh, do its thing. I was like, "Oh, you know, like this. This is going to be my way to blog this year, and I'm going to experiment with it." So, been doing it for about a year. Um, you know, in that year, uh, about three hundred fifty thousand views. Which, you know, again, like I don't know if that's good or bad. You know, I don't know if a couple thousand subscribers is good or bad. Like for me, it's just like, you know, it'll compound. You know, we talked about compounding interests. You know. Things like that compound over time, and for me, it's not about 
the subscribers or the viewers or, or any of that. It's like uh, if I can help one entrepreneur on their journey to building a successful company um, and you know, doing something awesome, like that's pretty rewarding in and of itself. So, um, you know, I'm just, you know, I appreciate it when, when people find the things that I'm putting out there helpful. Yeah. Well, one thing and what I, what I was hoping you would, you would get as this, as this forum, and that's one of the reasons I started this podcast. I felt, um, the last almost 10, 15 years, and, um, we had definitely had a bubble of entrepreneurship in the late nineties and, uh, it stretched in the early two thousands, but I felt the last 20 years, the, the role model of the entrepreneur, um, the the opportunities offered, um, and I'm, I'm, opportunities that are not based on a platform, say Uber, eBay, um, YouTube. I would exclude those, but economic opportunities for folks between fifteen and thirty, um, and also the the way funding worked. Right, funding worked. There was a lot of early stage funding, and then in between there wasn't that much. I felt, and then there was the vision fund. Um, which which kind of created a monopoly. I felt the the way entrepreneurship was viewed as a value, and I still think that has lost a lot of value, especially in the U.S. Um, I can't speak so much for other countries because they're on a different trajectory. Um, when I came to the U.S., I felt entrepreneurship as an ideal, and that is like you know Adam Smith, um, John Locke's idea of of creating something in the economy that is useful and that is creates a voluntary transaction that makes everyone better off both sides. Um, and that was a core value of the U.S. And I felt the last 20 years, we didn't have, we were in the big stagnation of entrepreneurship. And we might have turned this around with COVID or, you know, COVID kind of helped us rethink a lot of things. What is your gut feeling? Do, do you agree there was a big stagnation of entrepreneurship, especially the last 10 years? Or do you feel that's, that's kind of a first world problem and we, we're still leading the pack? Yeah, I don't know if I agree. Uh, and again, like I don't have data to back this up. Uh, just observationally, I think there is a lot more visibility of entrepreneurship. And just as a simple example, looking at TV shows like Shark Tank, which I think have had just amazing kind of public success and kind of show the model of what an entrepreneur and the relationship between an entrepreneur and an investor looks like. Um, you know, podcasts like How I Built This, I think have seen a huge audience build of uh, people building and starting businesses as well. So I, I do think there is perception that that people are building businesses. From the investor side, I'm also seeing a lot of early stage companies trying to start companies. Um, so I, you know, again, uh, it's hard for me to compare what's happening today with what happened in the 2000s dot com boom. Uh, or kind of a, a different generation of entrepreneurship, but I definitely see kind of um, a renaissance of a lot of young young people looking at entrepreneurship and even uh, things like content creation, like people saying like, "Oh, I want to be uh, making content on YouTube or on TikTok," and viewing that like again, that's not. Um, that's that's a form of entrepreneurship as well, right? Like you don't have a boss; you get to decide how and when you work and what you talk about and what your your strategy is. Again, that for me is a solo entrepreneur starting point. And anyone who's gone on the entrepreneurship journey, it starts with yourself. And like, how do you pay for your own, you know, your meals, your house, your whatever? You fill your own needs, and then from there, it's how do you grow that into a larger business? And again, that can be. 
you know, anything up and down, the, like it certainly doesn't have to be a content business. There's ser- services businesses, there are product businesses, there are, um, you know, all sorts of other derivatives as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly um, a part of entrepreneurship that, that, that absolutely counts. The problem with the platform-based entrepreneurship, and I make this example with eBay, right? The platform controls everything. They control, and, and Amazon for a while, the Amazon Marketplace was a similar platform. There's too much control on the side of, of the big platform. They, they control your payment. They control your customers. You can't just switch. You can't just take your customers from YouTube to, I don't know, Substack. And I agree. Try, like I think almost impossible for for every business. And again, I don't think it's unique today. Like every business has to think about what are the dependencies that your business has. You know, there are plenty of people who drive Uber, and they are kind of considered independent contractors, independent businesses. You know, in that model, there's a huge dependency on. Uber as a company. And if that company changes what it does or how it does it, you know, your business could go away. Every business, and again, even looking back 20 years, I remember businesses were very tied into Microsoft's technology stack. And if Microsoft changed a thing one way or another, you know, that could be disruptive to their business. Uh, you know, lots of businesses that are built on app platform, um, you know, are very dependent on Apple as an example of whether Apple does something or doesn't. You know, as businesses mature, you know, it is the job of the entrepreneur to uh, think through the risks of those dependencies, and in many cases mitigate those dependencies. Like, how do I remove that dependency on this third party? Should I be building my own technology? Should I have a backup plan for migrating from you know Amazon services to Microsoft to Google's to standing up my own services? Like, that is the journey of entrepreneurship, and and I do think it's important that entrepreneurs leverage the platforms when they can but then also think about how they remove the risks in their business uh, from failing. Yeah, 100%. That's, that's absolutely the role of the entrepreneur. I just feel that's not really happening on Instagram or TikTok or, or YouTube, but I agree with you. This could be like a breeding ground, like a, like a Petri dish, right? So you, you start out there, and then you go on and create a venture out of this. And some people have, like Instagram influencers. Uh, when I talk to creators on some of these platforms, especially in the communities where creators are talking to other creators, there's definitely a sense of diversification. Like, hey, I have so many subscribers on this platform. Like, what should I be doing? And if, if you listen to some of those conversations, it's all about diversification. Like, hey, don't invest all your eggs into one basket. Like, make sure that you're really building a brand um, and this is certainly something that, that larger companies think about as well. Like for Nike, it's not just about their TV ads, it's their radio, it's their internet, it's their social, it's their Twitter, it's their TikTok, it's their everything, right? And then they build a, a uniform brand around all of it. Um, you know, and if one of those pillars goes away, the table does not fall over. Like it's supported on multiple sides. Yeah, that's the way to go. Absolutely. Um, there was this, and that's related to it, is there was this Twitter theme, um, and it keeps reoccurring. Um, maybe you, you probably did a video on this, but a lot of people say, and that's a theme, um, it's not yet something um, that we can really attach ourselves to or measure it, but a lot of people say, you know, the, the value of, of money as an investment tool um, is decreasing and the, the awareness, the attention that you get if you are successful on social media 
the what influencers do that's increasing right um so if they have the and obviously it's the platform um even more importantly um but it's we rep represented often in the form of of specific brands on social media do you feel that's true so do you feel the the shift is going on and there's a secular shift from um the dollar economy to the attention economy and that that's also measurable for startups and you must see this like with the startups probably that's often harder for them to to get attention to work and like sell their product or get free users um, than to get investment dollars? I think it really depends on the business. Um, you know, I think in a nutshell, you need to build a great product and you need to tell a great story. And when I was first starting my business, I thought it was all about building a great product and I didn't spend enough time thinking about how to tell a great story and how to reach my audience. No Now I, I pay attention to both. I think it's important to not only tell a great story, but have a great product, right? And one reaches the other. If you yeah, have a great product, you know, the, um, the, the adage of like, yeah, oh, field of dreams, if you sure. build it, they will come. Well, that's really rare. Like, it's really rare that audiences or customers will just beat a path to your door to give you money. Uh, you need to figure out how to reach them. And that's really about audience building, whether it's sales or marketing or business development. And so it's important that businesses think about both sides of the equation. How do you tell a great story? Um, and again, that can be social, it can be media, it can be content, it could be direct marketing, it could be some other channel. Um, and then once you're able to reach that audience, you need to make sure that you can deliver them a fantastic product or service or business value such that you're kind of creating that self-fulfilling funnel. Have you, from, from the investments that you've done, what do you feel is, is your, your, the, the baby you're most proud of, right? Where, where these things came together, the product market fit, um, it, 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 it does tell a great story. And it had the right product at the right time. Uh, do you ever do you, do you already have a success story where you're really proud of? No, I, it, it's uh, like I said. I, I take a very long term view of this, and so it's way too early for me to uh, look at any of the companies that I've invested in to have that perspective. Um, you know, there's a number of companies that are doing really interesting things in their sector. Uh, you know, I'm excited by the uh, the founder, what they're doing, but like, it's just it's way too early to say. Like, yeah, like it, it's way too early to say. Some some of my my investments have gone through from uh, pre seed to seed to Series A, and so that gets me excited in terms of like, there's momentum, they're seeing traction with the market, people are excited, they're impacting real customers, uh, but. You know, it's still they're they're on kind of that first leg of a marathon journey, and uh, there's plenty of companies that you know stumbled along the way. So, like, um, you know, when I started angel investing, you know, I, I I basically built a financial model to look at like, okay, what is what are my personal expectations for an angel return? And how many companies do I need to invest in and how long might it take? And so my general assumption with my investments is that 80 to 90% of the companies I invest in will fail. And by fail, it means they will return less than 1x, maybe 1x or less than 1x. And so with an 80 to 90% failure rate, And an expected time horizon of you know six or seven years to even see early indications. It's just like 
it's way too early. Like at this point, I've invested in uh, 13 to 15 companies thereabouts. Um, you know, they could all easily fail. Like on the flip side, it only takes one of those to be successful to pay back the entire fund. And so I, I kind of have to take a longer term view of this. I also recognize that I am not kind of, um, uh, I'm new at this. And because of that, I expect my hit rate in the early years to be worse than my hit rate in the later years. And so uh, my kind of conversion rate, for lack of a better word, as an investor should improve over time. Therefore, my early investments are more likely to be failures than things I may be doing in the fourth, fifth, and sixth year of my, uh, my journey. How do you how do you find your your investments? They 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 cold call you. Um, you build um, active um, channels to them because you already know you want to invest, um, or they find you through YouTube. What, what's like your 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 method there? It's it's funny you ask this because I'm actually in the process of uh, writing my next video, which is how to find angel investors, and I'm trying to compile uh, the data on how people have found me because I, I have been keeping track. Um, uh, I don't have the data for you right now, so I don't know exactly what it is. I would say anecdotally, uh, a lot of people reach out to me through LinkedIn. Uh, I've seen a number of pitches through um, uh, angel groups uh, that I'm a member of. And so I'm a member of uh, three different angel groups. And so I've seen pitches via the angel groups. Uh, I've seen a number of introductions where people you know, have known me through prior work or prior relationships, and they either reach out directly or through an introduction. Uh, and then I've had, uh, you know, a bunch of people reach out cold, uh, meaning that they either contact me through the website or through Reddit or through Discord or through YouTube or through some other channel as well. You know, at the end of the day, I actually don't think it's about um, the channel, you know, Certainly, warm introductions are better than cold outreach, but it's about connecting with the investor and explaining why they're reaching out to you in particular. Um, you know, each investor, each angel, each venture capital firm has a different philosophy, has a different partner, has a different approach, has a different history of the things that they know and specialize in. And if you're kind of uh, scattershotting and throwing darts at a wall at a hundred different investors, hoping you're going to get a hit you're going to have a pretty low percentage of people actually responding or reading your email or responding to your pitch. Whereas if you're really targeted and surgical and you're thoughtful about why you're reaching out to certain investors and what they bring to the table, like if you're a biotech company, like you should be reaching out to people who have biotech experience. If you're a robotics firm, you should be looking at people who really understand the robotics field. If you're in crypto, you should be talking to people who can really add value or open up connections and doors and understand that crypto space. Again, people will invest outside of their area of expertise, so it's not just about the area of expertise, but it's about what value they can bring to you. And so it may be that expertise, it may be relationships, it may be geography, it may be you know, some other thing, but you really need to think about what your rationale is for reaching out and connecting with a particular person because you'll have a much higher response rate of people reacting to it. I always felt this whole process is ripe for disruption. Um, I don't want to say it's broken. I, I, I felt that there's got to be a better model, right? Um, and I think um, Angelus tried to do that. Um, They've, they've, they've started that and now they have their own fund um, where, where they co-invest. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky process that seems to be um, 
everyone has their own ideas about it from investor to investor right there is some organ there is some organization to it there is some standardization but it is for both sides not easy and i think this is this is kind of um um, this is kind of by design. It shouldn't be too easy to find each other. There needs to be a certain challenge to overcome. It's almost like a video game, right? There needs to be a certain challenge to overcome. You need to progress to level 10. And then when you're at level 10, then you get an introduction. Um, that seems to be a part of that. It's funny. I've actually been pitched apps that help you pitch and do that matchmaking. And, you know, I don't think it's a. I mean, it's it's just general networking, and this is this is true. There's certainly dating apps and networking apps and LinkedIn and things of that nature. But uh, when founders are thoughtful and they really understand who they need, you know, helping them, and they're not just looking for someone who can write a check, but looking for someone who can really shape the direction of their company or add value beyond just the capital, I think they're, they're more likely to have uh, success in those conversations. You know, one of the things I tell uh, first-time founders and entrepreneurs is, you know, before you start asking for money, ask for advice, you know, and, and because that'll kind of orient you around what are the true things that are going to help you build a successful business. Um, you know, if you're always asking for money, People automatically put up their guard, and they don't want to. They don't necessarily want to give you money until you've jumped through the hurdles of traction and team and progress and whatever. Whereas if you're like, "Look, I know I don't have my, you know, I don't have my shit together. I'm still figuring things out. I'm trying to build a successful company. I'm looking for advice. You know, can you point me in the right direction? I see you have this expertise, which I think is really relevant to me." Uh, or you've been there, done that. You've started a company in this industry. You know, can you tell me the things that worked for you? You know, then people's guard comes down, and they're able to actually point you in the right direction. And that's where people will, you know, I found become advisors, uh, and in some cases even investors to these early stage companies because they really have opened up that that door of like, okay, let me be helpful. But that's a great hack. I, I fully agree with you. That's kind of what well, how I proceeded. Most of my startups is to bring in advisors in first, um, and then eventually make them ambassadors. Um, and they definitely had a higher social standing. They were older. They were more integrated in society. Had better connections to investors. And they almost always brought investors. They typically didn't bring the institutional around, but they definitely brought in a larger angel network, like half a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars from a, from an individual um, that worked perfectly. Um, and it's I think it's from both sides it's a little more honest, and it's kind of. Almost like a, when you, when you think of dating, it's like it's a way of of having a conversation first, right? Um, and I think this is this this is a very very valuable advice, and it also gives you an idea as an entrepreneur if if that person might be a good match or or not. Because literally, I think investment most of the time, and that's what I feel and 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 what I've been doing. The trouble is you. You can only do so much due diligence, right? You only have so much time, so many resources. So you need to be in a in a sector that you're being that an entrepreneur presents to you. It needs to be something you already feel very comfortable. It's something where you can assess the risk very well because you know so many parameters in this industry and you're ahead of the crowd, so to speak. But if you you're being thrown into an industry you know nothing about, you're basically an idiot, right? Um, you do have some yep. a, a lot of knowledge as about business knowledge and about startups, but it's very difficult to validate that. So if you ask me and 
there's a company that builds submarines, and I have to distinguish two submarines, and one costs a million, one a hundred thousand, and the entrepreneurs say, yeah, we built the same thing, it's much cheaper. I'm like, I, I have no idea how submarines work, or how the buyers think. So it's, it's, people underestimate how investing, how much it is, is a, is a risk reduction factor, right? If you already know a lot about that place, or you feel it's going up anyway, so that's the trend following part, you've, you're much more open to the idea of actually investing because you feel you have superior data. Yeah, and that, that's that's a key thing. Like investors want to f- know that they have an unfair advantage, and certainly their prior work expertise relationships can be that unfair advantage. Uh, for people who do watch Shark Tank, like it's clear there's certain investors who really know a particular vertical or industry, whether it's direct to consumer, QVC, technology, apparel, whatever whatever you know the particular person's domain is, and if you Go to the wrong investor, you know, it just doesn't work as well. Their, their network isn't as strong. They don't have the formula to turnkey help that company be successful. And the same is very true outside of Shark Tank as well. Like I've built, um, you know, my, my personal expertise is more on the fusion of technology and design. And so where, you know, a product has a real center around user experience or user interface or mobile UI, you know, I can help founders really significantly, you know, improve that user experience and improve that product. But for many companies, that's not the linchpin for them being successful or failure. Sometimes it's go to market, sometimes it's B2B sales, sometimes it's enterprise, sometimes it's cloud, sometimes it's, you know, something completely outside my domain. And so being very surgical about who you're approaching and why, and making sure that you're picking investors who have an unfair advantage, because at the end of the day, you want to win, right? Like the, the goal is to find investors who will help get you to the next level of growth. How excited are you about crowdfunding? I had Darren Marble on, and uh, he's, he's having his show now on entrepreneur.com um, about um, raising funds. Um, it's like a mini IPO. These things have gone to, I think, up to seventy-five million that you can soon raise in a crowdfund, um, like literally out of nowhere. You don't you need a certain amount of documents, but um, there isn't much of a track history required. How excited are you about that? Uh, I think it's an interesting model. Like, uh, I think it works for certain types of product categories, especially physical products. Um, uh, there is some danger. To crowdfunding and kind of entrepreneurs should be thinking about the operating costs of their business versus the the kind of first time inventory capital uh, because they're not identical and I've seen lots of companies get themselves into trouble because they raise you know they have a good crowdfunding campaign but they don't factor in their operating costs and so they either have to dip into the piggy bank with the crowdfund, which reduces their longer-term margins, or they have to raise a round of financing. So you just have to have a financial model of like, okay, let's say you blow it out of the water with a crowdfunding campaign. Like, how do you actually pay your staff? Because the margins that you were expecting on those products don't happen until that is actually delivered. And so there's a cash flow issue that companies can have if they're not careful. Um, I, I, I mean. All in all, I think it's great that there are alternative funding mechanisms, and I do think that crowdfunding can be a fantastic way for first-time entrepreneurs to uh, effectively bootstrap their company. Uh, 
the only caveat is like really think through what happens if you are successful to make sure that you don't end up underwater. There's lots of stories where you know a company had a successful crowdfunding campaign but underestimated the costs of R&D, production, operations and it ended up not delivering the product and getting themselves into hot water. So it's a great great model. It's just like any business thinking through all of the operational mechanics of how that's going to work. Yeah, I was thinking of it from a from a digital um, product or di- digital service perspective, and what immediately it struck me is well, so this you do all the marketing right, you, and you 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 need a certain conversion rate. But from a digital point of view, if you have a digital service or product, why don't you just sell the product in the first place, right? So why do you go through the route of investing? That's a little odd. Now there is places where this makes a lot of sense, where you kind of move around cash flows because you rather have a few million now and then you can go to to the next level, so to speak, or you might there's an entry barrier of a market you have to overcome. But often I felt that's that's kind of my my only criticism. I'm, I'm very excited about about crowdfunding, but my only criticism is that in, in many places I feel. Unless you have to, like, you're literally Intel and you have to uh, build up a factory for a couple of billion dollars, but then you just put sand in and a bunch of people and then you, you come up with these valuable semiconductors. A lot of industries, it's maybe better to just convert your customers, right? I mean, this is expensive and this is slow sometimes, but it helps you get so much more feedback, especially in the beginning. And customers almost always will tell you if this makes sense or not, right? So the product market fit, people people talk about that a lot, that you have something yeah. and a lot of people say, oh, this, this sounds interesting, but somehow no, nobody really puts the trigger, uh, flips the switch and says, I want to buy this. But they will tell you if you ask them. And if you raise a lot of crowdfunding, I think you raise expectations even more. It's kind of like the, the VC game. You raise the expectations, but actually you don't know much more about your product yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think there's some industries, and that's why I say hardware in particular, where the cost of building version one is particularly high. And, and kind of if you look at Indiegogo and Kickstarter and some of the other ones that are doing this, um, you know, a lot of their origins were from these more physical, tangible assets where you have to, you know, cast the mold or do a production run of a minimum number of units. And so, it, you know, it's, some of those mechanics make sense. Um, you know, I, I do think to your point, like getting out to market and getting real customer feedback is so critical. And oftentimes you don't have to do anything complicated, uh, like put the product in the hands of real people. Uh, even if you're not monetizing it, give it to people for free. Tell them, you know, would you use this for free? If people won't use your product for free, like you haven't found the thing that's, that's going to be valuable to them. You, you want to generate engagement and people leaning in and excited about your product and asking for features. And, and, and if you're not getting that, uh, you're not quite there yet. Yeah, what I found interesting with the digital products I did Often the the customer acquisition cost for a free customer is the same as for a paying customer, and I find this always very stunning because you know you get this little attention span in someone's universe and say, okay, use me, use me, use me. I might be useful for you, but it's actually unless you know that's a product that, like, say, Google search, everyone is already looking out for. The customer acquisition is the same for free, paid, or or crowdfund customer. So you can actually choose. And very often, it's better to go with the with a crowdfund place, if uh, with a <laughs> with a full conversion to a customer, if you have that option, and not do the crowdfunding too. Well, the the other interesting thing I've seen this in a couple of companies where um, customers who pay are stickier and are more likely to actually use the product because they've invested money in. Like if you've invested nothing, um, you know, if something shows up in the mail uh, and they're like, "Try this," you know. 
you know, maybe I'll use it, maybe I, I don't, but I don't really care either way. Whereas, you know, if I invested a hundred dollars to try something, um, I really don't want to throw it out because I perceive that thing as having value, uh, because I made a prior decision. So I'm more likely to give it more of a try and engage more with it prior to throwing it out. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive, but sometimes, uh, paying for something increases the perceived value of it as well. It's a strange, strange what's going on psychology there. Um, let, let me, let me go to another uh, topic and I know you feel strongly about. Um, you, you've made videos about GPT and I think they're very instructional, they're very helpful. What do you feel is, is the future of GPT-3 itself, right? And, and AI in general. Um, are we on the, on the cusp of something great? Is it just something that looks like statistics? We had Stephen Schwartz on a couple of episodes ago and he said, well, you know, I basically did this in the 80s. We have better computers now, but statistics is the same and there isn't any real learning in there. And definitely there is nothing that resembles consciousness. Um, do you think this is going to happen? And well, I, I um, was uh, listening to a podcast with one of the founders of GPT-3 from OpenAI and he said, you know, a GPT-5 might actually feel like, like an artificial general intelligence. Do you feel we're pretty close? Do you think it's a it's a good tool um, in terms of you know not just developing a startup but also the the, the larger economy? Um, how bullish are you on artificial intelligence? Yeah, I mean I, I'm really excited about it. I, I think you know in in making those videos, I got a lot of feedback, and a lot of people are scared. You know, if I were to summarize it, they're kind of nervous about their job. They're nervous about um, kind of. Uh, You know, pick your sci-fi movie, whether it's Terminator or or Alien or whatever, where this um, this uh, AI becomes sentient and and destroys us all. Uh, I don't I don't see that kind of dystopian future. I think uh, we'll continue to see AI be introduced into more and more aspects of technology we already use. Like we're you know in my Office here. I have a you know an Amazon product and a Google product. I'm not going to say their names, as I know people play podcasts with uh, the audio turned up and they all respond. And you know, I have uh, AirPods. You have AirPods. They they have Siri integrated. Um, you know, these technologies have AI and a lot of AI built into them. And you know, I see my daughters using these technologies and asking them questions. Um, assuming that they have some amount of general intelligence, you know, I can ask uh, my various assistants uh, general open-ended questions. I'd say they're um, get it right some percentage of the time. A lot of times they get it wrong. And my expectation of of OpenAI uh, and similar AI technologies is that those technologies will continue to make their way into the things that we use every day, and. Th- Rather than getting it wrong, um, you know, our assistants will start to get things right more often. Uh, you know, Gmail and other email products, voicemail already have AI elements built in. Netflix already has elements built in. You know, our my Android TV, my you know Tesla car, my whatever, like they all have elements of AI built in. I do think that OpenAI could be. Uh, a large step in terms of improving the quality, uh, because most of the quality of these tools is, is pretty poor. Uh, and so I'm excited about a step function in improvement of quality. I don't think we're on the cusp of uh, general AI. Some of the things that I have seen are 
really interesting. I mean, the compelling products or the compelling uh, tools that I think can simplify and improve people's lives. Uh, but we still have a huge challenge to figure out exactly how to do that and how to mitigate some of the risks. I think, and, and there are risks. There are risks in, you know, spam, in fake media, in you know, content farms generating a bunch of things that look authentic but are in fact, uh, you know, computer generated. And so that's that's kind of a challenge for us as a society to figure out how to make sure that the tools are used for good. Um, and similar to other technologies like spam and email marketing, like these are all tools that can be used for good or evil. It's up to us to, to figure out kind of how to navigate those waters. I had David Orban on a couple of episodes ago, and he, he made an extremely bullish case. He, he, he basically said we're easily going to triple our GDP if we put AI on a, on a, on a, on a very primary trajectory of development, including uh, research funding, but obviously a lot of this comes from the, from the private sector. And one thing that he made, and that's, that's kind of a, a general um, difficulty dealing with this, is the, the second we have AGI, it doesn't, it, and let's assume it, it happens in five years, right? It could be a hundred years out, thousands of years out, but let's assume it, it goes, it's relatively close, um, say it's 10 years from now. He said, you know, that's actually not the problem. And the problem is what happens a day later or five days later when, when Microsoft puts another billion dollars into, into running this model again and refining it with user feedback. It, it will not stop there, right? It will be 2x or will be 100x the next in, in incarnation of GPT-10, so to speak. Is 100x better than GPT-9? Like, it doesn't stop there. And literally five years later, you have, in, in AGI, after you had the first AGI, five years later, you have one that's smarter than all 9 billion people put together. And I think this is, this is this logarithmic effect that a lot of people, I think, are not prepared for thinking about. A lot of practitioners of AI will say, oh, you know what, I can't predict the future, but AI changes so much. And I had Mark Sarafiman, he, he wrote a bunch of articles about it. Um, he said there is a big stagnation, but on the other hand, things can change drastically just the, literally in a matter of two months. Like GPT-3 was not expected even by the people who built it. And I think people have this this fear, and maybe there's there's some justification to it. Maybe there's a lot of justification to it that there's something going on that once it's out of the bag and it seems to be just ready to be be jumping out of the bag, there's no level of control that we have. Like we can prepare ourselves for that event, but it's like saying we have to prepare ourselves for the aliens. And you're like, okay, well, so what do we do to prepare ourselves? And we're like, yeah, we, we, they might come tomorrow. Yeah, like, I just I, go ahead. I mean, and again, this is just my my perspective. Like I think. Um, there's the intelligence, and let's just imagine for a second that this exists today. That you know, on my phone or over at IBM or Microsoft, they have an algorithm that is really good at answering questions, like better than any human has ever answered questions before. For me, that's a tool, right? Like, and the question is, how does that impact or change society? I, I, I think personally I think it's larger the than idea. This, right? It's it's problem solving. It's like say when when we have first AGI, it's like we have suddenly we have a billion more employees that can solve problems in a digital realm for, overnight. Uh, yeah, and again, like I I tend to be an optimist, and I, I know that there's a bunch of people who uh, view the the world uh, more pessimistically. But there are problems that we as a society have had for hundreds of years that our stupid mammal brains have not been able to solve. 
uh, through politics, through global pandemics, through kind of, I mean, pick a problem, right? Uh, you know, I, I think that AI, especially powerful AI, if put to the right purposes, would be fantastic at solving certain problems that we as humans have had a ton of problems and, in fact, have not been able to solve. Uh, and so, again, pick, pick your world world-scale global problem, if we can put AI and technology and tools into solving those, I think that's a really powerful thing. Oh, I agree with you 100%. I, I'm, 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 I think this is, but the thought process is the problem, right? So it's, it's the, the uh, say you, you, it's like saying we have too many young men who have um, too much testosterone and that's a problem for our country because um, if they're all unemployed, the society is going to go under and there's going to be riots and people are going to die. And it's true, right? But on the other hand, this is an incredible resource for building the country for the next 50 years. And if we find a way to motivate people, incentivize them, then this is this is how we build the next generation, right? So and I think the same is true for AGI. It's just suddenly we will, will go from 9 billion thinking brains to hundreds of millions of thinking, of billions of extra um, thinking brains, so to speak, that obviously will, will help us, but we have to, they, the AGIs will have the same problem we have. They will just grow and mature much quicker than we have, have done in the last couple hundred thousand years. E- even knowing what I know about GPT-3 and OpenAI and some of the advances, like I happen to believe that technology just... It takes a lot longer than we think for a number of different reasons. Um, some of those are society, some of those are government, some of those are uh, politics, some of them are bureaucracies. But like, you know, if you go back and look at futurists in the 1950s and 60s, um, you know, we should be flying in cars with robots and all sorts of, you know, um, futuristic tech. And Technology has advanced amazingly, um, but some of the things that we either fear or hoped, they don't tend to happen or evolve or change at the pace that we expect. And so while I do think AI will continue to improve, probably in exponential ways, um, I am more conservative in terms of my expectation of how society will change over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Like, uh, even if uh, a more general intelligence does get developed, I think its ability to impact society as a whole uh, will take a lot longer. Yeah, even yeah. looking at sci-fi and uh, you know whether it's Star Wars or Star Trek, where you know these are futures where you know artificial general intelligence exists, and whether it's data R two D two or C three PO. Uh, you know, a lot of these tools are crafted in these futures as a tool for society to utilize to the benefit of, you know, the protagonist's goal. Again, that that's a, a fictional future, but I, I do think that that a lot of these tools and technologies are being crafted in that way, and that's for me feels like the most probable application of some of these tools being injected into the digital assistance of the future. I mean, I've, as more I think and talk about this, this topic AI, and I say two years ago I would have had the exact same opinion. Now that I've been talking about it so much, maybe that's because I'm so 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 influenced by some of the speakers we had on. And Steve Schwartz was very conservative. He said, you know, forget about it. It's not going to happen. With a bunch of other speakers and guests on, 
and I felt like they've convinced me. Um, maybe, maybe that's just you know my my mind. And I always felt I was always in love with science fiction from from the time I could read. I was reading basically only science fiction. So maybe this is the the fire they have they they've restarted in me. But I think as more you learn about it, as at, at one at one point you're like, whoa, it's it's maybe it's definitely a question of time. We don't know if it's ten, a hundred years, a thousand years, but it might be a problem definitely for our grandchildren. Maybe not for us and our children, but it's this this thought process. And David Auburn was comparing it to to CRISPR technology, which seemed really scary at the outset. And uh, a lot of people thought about it, came up with guidelines, and it kind of nobody even worries about it anymore. It's it's gone came out of. It's not on people's minds anymore. And uh, he was saying, you know, that's all we need to do. We have to go through this thought process and it's, we're going to be fine. We don't have to worry about it, but we have to go through the process. And if we don't, we, we won't get overly scared. And it happens, it, it will happen anyways. We can't, we can't just say it won't, we can't just de-exist it. It won't, this doesn't work. Yeah, and if you if you look at kind of the the original mission vision of why OpenAI was founded and put together, um, you know, a lot of that was for you know for that very reason. How do we set up a company to think through the implications of artificial intelligence and how it affects society and make sure it doesn't spiral out of control? And so. Uh, Again, you know, I don't, I don't work at OpenAI. I don't have uh, anything other than I've read publicly, but I know that's of very top concern for them. And having worked uh, in other large companies, I'm sure uh, that notion of like, how do we make sure that this is being used for um, for the betterment of society and and doesn't fall into the wrong hands? Yeah, what you what you said earlier, I think. It sounded like you're. you're I, I am a big fan of that Peter Thiel's con- somewhat contrarian idea. Still, that we, we we have this big stagnation, right? So outside of semiconductors and fields that have been heavily influenced by semiconductors and by financial services, we didn't see a ton of um, progress in technological adoption, but also just in pure innovation and inventions since the '70s, so to speak, mid '70s. That seems to be the point where 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 it it stopped happening. Do you subscribe to that, or you have a different worldview? I just want to make sure I understand what you mean. You, you, you're saying that you don't think there's been a lot of innovation over the last fifty years, or yeah. So outside of semiconductors, right? Everything that's influenced by semiconductors clearly made a lot of progress. Um, yeah, no doubt about that. But everything outside that and financial services also they made a lot of progress. A lot of people say it's not sustainable. Who knows? We will see at some point. Um, but finance is extremely. Um, Important for for innovations, right? They usually go hand in hand uh, because these things usually get really expensive at some point. You need to finance it somehow. And but outside yeah. of these two fields, uh, his thesis is you know not much happened. The planes look the same, the cars look the same. All these kind of important, expensive technologies, the house like houses are built. It kind of is exactly the same. Nothing much happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. It's all about the framing. Like I, I think you can certainly frame frame the conversation in terms of like, hey, things are all the same. Like I, I wake up, I brush my teeth, I have breakfast, I go to work. Um, you know, on the on the flip side, you can look at any industry and be like, okay, where we get our food has completely changed, and how agriculture works has completely changed over the last fifty years in terms of farming and centralization and and things of that nature. If you look at uh, transportation, you know the way we book our travel. And you know services like Airbnb or services like Uber, um, you know transportation has fundamentally changed pretty drastically from 
ownership to borrowing and kind of this this uh, shared economy. So there are really disruptive innovations across any sector that you choose out, outside of finance, outside of semiconductors, whether it's warehousing and Amazon or entertainment and movies and Netflix. Uh, I do think there's very large disruptive changes. But at the end of the day, we are still humans. <laughs> so we're, we're, uh, we like to be entertained. You know, before it used to be at movie theaters. Now it's on mobile devices. We like to communicate, you know, before it was, you know, on telephones that were plugged into wires. Now it's wireless or on apps like Clubhouse. And so a lot of the things I talk about with, um, startups is really like, how do you lean into the behaviors that people have? And try not to drastically change the behaviors, but provide the tools and technologies to make those behaviors better, faster, smarter, more intuitive, less disruptive, kind of those types of things. And those are the companies that that really, I think, have the opportunity to take off and have dramatic changes. You know, at the end of the day, like even taking an example like Lyft and Uber, you know, I need to get from point A to point B. Like in the past, I used to call a taxi cab or stand on the side of a corner and put my arm out and wait for the taxi cab to show up. And then I'd have to pay. Like I was still getting from point A to point B. What Uber did is they said, okay, I'm still going to take that person from their goal, from their objective from where they are to where they need to go, I'm just going to remove a bunch of friction of the things that are not fun about that experience. You know, Netflix did the same thing with entertainment, um, you know, Instagram and Facebook. Like, these are not new concepts. Uh, they're just taking uh, things that we would normally want to do, which is share and communicate, take photos, and making them either more enjoyable or simpler. And so... Um, I do think there's been a ton of innovation. Uh, a lot of it has been wrapped around digital in some way. But even if we look at physical um, manufacturing and if we look at um, you know how people work uh, and just go to blue collar jobs, um, you know how we file our taxes, like every aspect of our life has shifted quite differently. It's still recognizable. Like if you dropped someone from the 1950s into 2020, like they'd be blown away by the technology, but they'd still understand, like, oh, this is how you watch your news on this screen, and oh, this is how you have a conversation. So, you know, we're still human, so those things will not change. And that's why I say some yeah, technologies like OpenAI, like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll figure out how to integrate those technologies into our daily lives. I'm more impatient. Um, I, I feel you, the, these these are definitely innovations, but many of them are very gradual. And I feel like the the innovation score that I would assign to Uber or Lyft is very low. I mean, it's beautifully done, right? It has a huge marketing engine, and I use it every day. I, I miss it if I don't have it. If I go to a country like Germany where they don't have Uber or nothing that that's similar to Uber um, at a relatively affordable price, and I, I'd rather go to places that have Uber. But it's and it, I'm 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 agree with you. It has a big impact on people, um, and it makes them comfortable, it makes them safe. But technology is barely in this equation. I feel. Um, what would be big eye innovation? I, I guess that's the other way to phrase it. Like flying cars wouldn't be crazy innovative as well. Like those have been on the drawing board for the last. 50, 60 years as well. So it's really kind of what, however you frame like machine building, machine machines, robots, so to speak, that build houses or houses that can come up like a fully, not just a temporary structure, can come up in a week 
or planes, planes that go everywhere in like an hour, or we can go to Mars, right? Those are the things we all have been, all expected for 2020, and <laughs> none of those happened, right? Uh, well, we, we, we. I have a robot, you know, I have a 3D printer. This is a robot that can manufacture anything I want, right? Within a certain scale, right? Like, uh, and it has bounds of things that it can do and can't do, but like a lot of those technologies would be tantamount to magic. Like, wow, like I have a device here that can put audio into my ears, like directly wirelessly. Like I can listen to any song uh, in the world ever produced, um, you know, just by typing into a little box. Like, uh, again, you, you, it doesn't feel like magic. It doesn't feel like innovation because we've grown up with it. And it's been little bits over time, like, oh, we can put our CDs on an iPod. Wow, that's kind of cool. Like, but that's a small innovation. Oh, we can take all of those things and wire them to the internet. Oh, okay, that's a small change. And like all those small changes, it's that compounding interest that you were talking about before. Like, it, I, I do think there are huge leaps of innovation. Uh, it just doesn't feel that way because we're living it. I, I, I like your perspective on this. I feel it's different in a way that we as a society, and I, I feel like, and I, I draw this from religion, and that's, but that's a whole other topic, um, that life and, and the way we should live life is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So we, and entrepreneurship is, a, is an outgrowth of this, is a really good mirror for this. So in, in, it's kind of when you raise your children, what do you want to do? You want to set really high expectations. You want to, don't want to make them too crazy far off so it can never be achieved, right? Because then they're useless. But they want to, you want to, um, calibrated that they're relatively close but still challenging it's kind of a moving target right so your children grow up and they do things when they're 12 that they couldn't even think of when they were six and you were still scolding them because they're not good enough right so for children that's confusing but i think for a society we should have this this positive self-fulfilling prophecy and i i think we kind of some people have it some don't um what I'm trying to say is we, we've lowered the goal of what we expect from the future. And I think this is why we've reduced our, our growth rate in terms of productivity rate. Um, that's a big, big factor of it. We are not as hardcore, so to speak, in expecting a better future for us and for our children as we used to be. Um, and that's more a society element, right? That's, that's each individual is obviously all over the map and the scale. And I think this is why we see this, this stagnation. And yes, innovation still happens and probably we have more innovation and just total count. But the, the, uh, the effect of it and the way we accumulate capital ideas together, it's not as challenging as I would feel. Uh, we could be, but may maybe it's just my gut feeling and I'm one, one of the people who's, who's on the other side of that scale, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, we'll have to see. I don't know. That's what, one of those that you, it's hard to tell in the moment. You have to kind of look back at it. Oh, remember ten years ago when we said X? Like, you know, it, it, it's it's hard to recognize change when you're living it. Uh, it. It's only kind of when you look back. Because when when I look back on you know uh, a different era, like uh, look back at the year two thousand, you're like, wow, like that was the year that. that the web became a thing and dot-coms became and we started using these apps and Amazon and Google and Yahoo and all these services and companies and AOL formed and changed. And again, it's all perspective. Like we can do that now because we have the perspective of what those companies did and became, you know, in the same way, like we can be looking right now at, uh, you know, Tesla and EVs and be like, okay, incrementally every year they're, uh, EVs and batteries and solar and, and things are getting better and that's nice to see. 
Um, but it's hard to put that in perspective from what it will look like 15, 20 years from now uh, and what that company will have become or OpenAI or Apple or any of the other companies. Like it, it's, it's hard to, to understand that context in the moment. It's hard to have an alternate history as well, and uh, I think it's what, you, what you're referring to is, is is Einstein, right? He he was in in his elevator and realized, you know, once the elevator has has has, has um, accelerated, it's impossible to tell what speed you're traveling because for you it seems like you're traveling at the normal speed, yes. whatever the normal speed is. Right? It's all relative. So you only feel the acceleration, relative. maybe, <laughs> but you don't feel the actual speed you're going. So that's a, that's a good example. Um, I want to I want to ask you about you know from your personal perspective and I know you're ready to invest uh, you have you 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 put your own money to it and you take that risk where do you feel are opportunities that are going to be big enough um, and maybe that might not be the investment vehicle but it's something you would love to see and love to invest to in the next five to ten years and I don't know if you as specific as you can be um, what are areas that really excite you for you right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm looking across sectors, so it's not really um, sector specific. I like uh, trends that that seem inevitable, um, and so you know, certain things that seem inevitable, and it's just a matter of getting there. And so, um, I think there's large trends uh, to uh, electrification, uh, you know, de-oiling, de-coaling, things of that nature. I think there are large trends to, um, the reduction of single-use plastics and packaging. I think there's large trends to, uh, multi-sided marketplaces. I think there's a large trend to, uh, things like remote work. Um, and so companies that lean into things that seem like they're good long-term, uh, 10, 20 year bets, you know, are, are interesting companies to go look at because they're thinking about the long term and they're leaning into a, a trend that's otherwise happening. It, but you would focus on something if you invest into it, on something that would has a real user interface at, at stake, right? Like something that's already been in the process before, but it hasn't been done in a way that people really appreciate it. Say the iPhone, right? They've had Linux based phones around for a long time. Yeah, like that, that's one of the areas that I, I think I can add value. But like, I, I, I do look across areas. Uh, again, my, my personal thesis or the things that I get excited by is, you know, products that improve lives through the combination of technology and design. Now, you know, my personal contribution to that can be anything. Like, and again, I, I do like to feel like it can help founders. Um, but where there's an important union of technology and design, that's where I think, you know, I get more excited about the potential of what that company can be. Okay, um, that's that sounds really exciting. I'm I'm myself running out of battery today, so <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, hope we hope we can do this again in the future. Thanks for coming, Greg. Uh, that was awesome. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and your ideas. Just let me know if okay. I can help with anything. We will. We will. Let me try to find uh, a proper it, background. It may be a little. Um, thanks for being so flexible. <laughs> no, we, I appreciate that. Yeah, no and problem. We'll try to work some magic. Hopefully, it's going to turn out still very good. Yeah, and, and, and there is an issue and you need me to repeat an answer or whatever, just let me know. Awesome, right. I really appreciate it. All right. Talk Sounds soon. good. Be well. Thanks for doing this. Yep, bye-bye. Bye.